first graders to fourth graders. All right. Great to see everybody this morning. I was going to do a few more jokes about all the rain, but I, I just wasn't very encouraged last Sunday by the response I received, so I, I'm going to put that off for a rainy day. You like that? You like that? <laughs> so, if you walk in Christian circles for a while, you will probably hear the phrase, quenching the Spirit, meaning the Holy Spirit. The phrase is used to, to talk about how people sin and thus they hinder the Holy Spirit, the work of the Spirit. You might hear something like, it was a great Sunday school class until so-and-so said something and it just quenched the spirit. So you ever heard something like that before? It's pretty common. What's interesting, though, is that when you see the phrase actually used in Scripture, that it doesn't refer to our sin personally hindering the spirit. It refers to something entirely different. The phrase refers to hindering the spirit over the matter of prophecy. Prophecy. That puts a new angle on it, doesn't it? Now certainly, when we do sin, it hinders the work of the spirit. And certainly, that's a fine application of the principle, but... The primary reference in the passage refers to hindering the work of prophecy that comes through the Holy Spirit. It's not surprising this phrase is misused because the notion of prophecy is often neglected in much of American Christianity, even though it's spoken of quite often in the New Testament. So today we're going to look at the passage that talks about quenching the Spirit to see what it actually says and what it means for us. So I think you'll see that our discussion today is very fascinating and very important for the life of the church. So let me invite you to turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 as we continue our series on this book. As I said, we're in the conclusion of the letter where Paul gives... Uh, Commandments about community conduct and how the church is supposed to live out life as the people of God. And Paul, in this closing section of the book, writes in a different style. There is a lot of imperatives, a lot of commandments here in, these, in this short section. And these commandments are not just random, but they cover four areas. First, we talked about the relationship between church leaders and members. Then we talked about the relationship between members themselves. And then last week we talked about godly actions in the community. Remember we talked about praying without ceasing, rejoicing always, and so forth. Today we come to the fourth area, which is prophecy. Now, we're gonna, my plan this morning is to read our passage and then to ask two questions. Because I think we need to, to make sure we have a Prophecy 101 class, okay? And so we're going to ask two questions. What is prophecy? The second question is, is it continuing today? And then after that, we'll go back to our passage, see what it says, try to apply it. 
that make sense? So again, the overarching theme throughout this whole section is the conduct of the community, but today's focus is prophecy. So please turn to page 988 if you're using one of the Bibles in front of you, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. So again, let's just start by reading our passage today. Verse 19 says, Do not quench the Spirit. Do not despise prophecies, but test everything. Hold fast what is good. Abstain from every form of evil. So Paul commands us not to quench the Spirit. Then he explains what that means by saying, do not despise prophecies. So we quench the Spirit when we despise prophecies. Of course, that leads to the $64,000 question, what is prophecy? Well, I like the definition of, of pastor and theologian Sam Storms, who says prophecy is the, quote, human report of a divine revelation. The human report of a divine revelation. God reveals an insight that a person could not have known otherwise. Then the person shares that with others. That is what prophecy is. So to clarify, a prophecy is more than a hunch or an impression that sometimes we might get. Well, you might think, I knew you were going to say that, right? Where we just might have an inclination towards something. Prophecy goes beyond that. There might be some overlap, but prophecy is something that you could not have deduced or guessed because it is a revelation from God. Does that make sense? You say, well, what is the purpose of prophecy? Well, according to 1 Corinthians 14.3, it says, The one who prophesies speaks to people for their upbuilding and encouragement and consolation. So like all spiritual gifts... Prophecy is meant to strengthen the church, to build up the church. You say, well, how does it do so? Well, it does it in a variety of ways. Prophecy can provide wisdom to an individual or a church about the will of God. We see this in Acts 13 where some prophets and teachers were gathered in Antioch and they were praying and fasting and the Holy Spirit revealed to them that Paul and Barnabas were to go on a mission trip. And of course, that launched the mission movement that you see in the book of Acts as Christianity spread throughout the Roman Empire. So it gave wisdom to them. Do you see that? Prophecy can also give comfort, as we just said from 1 Corinthians 14.3, right? To know that God cares about you in your struggles as you hear a word of encouragement or consolation. Prophecy, we often assume that prophecy is prediction. As I'm showing you, it's more than prediction, but it can include prediction of the future. Acts 11, 27 to 28, it says, During this time, some prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. One of them, named Agabus, stood up and through the Spirit predicted that a severe famine would spread over the entire Roman world. This happened during the reign of Claudius. So this Prophecy was a prediction about a coming famine that happened. Prophecy can also provide a word of judgment. 1 Corinthians 14, we read such a case, verses 24 to 25. It says, If all prophesy and an unbeliever or outsider enters, 
he is convicted by all. He is called to account by all. The secrets of his heart are disclosed. And so falling on his face, he will worship God and declare that God is really among you. You say, what was that about? Well, Paul envisions a situation where a non-Christian enters into a Christian worship service and then some people prophesy about something that was in this man's heart that they would not have had a knowledge about. And this man is overwhelmed by his sin, by encountering the presence of the living God, that he falls down and worships God. I don't think Paul was just speculating about what might have happened. I think this was a situation probably Paul experienced himself. So in all these cases, the church, that's the overarching principle. The church is strengthened as people experience revelation from God that gives wisdom, comfort, prediction, and judgment. The reality of the presence and the power of God is is reinforced as you experience him in this kind of fresh and unique and powerful way. And also, non-Christians may be converted as they hear about prophecy and believe in Christ. So friends, that in a nutshell is an answer to the question, what is prophecy? Second question, is the gift of prophecy still functioning? There are two main views on that question. Cessationism believes that miraculous gifts ceased sometime between the end of the first century when the the apostles died off and the third and fourth century when the New Testament canon, the, the, the complete books that we have, was closed. Cessationists don't claim that God stopped doing miracles, but that he stopped performing regular miracles through miraculous gifting. So Christians should not expect to see miracles in any type of normal fashion, regular fashion, and that would include the gift of prophecy. The other view is continuationism that believes that miracles did not cease in the first century but have continued to the present day. Both views have smart, godly proponents. So this debate is not a matter of orthodoxy. All right. This is not an essential of the faith like the deity of Jesus or that salvation is by grace alone or the authority of Scripture. Okay, Christians should not divide over this matter. I firmly believe that. But that said, I believe that continuationism better reflects Scripture. Specifically, I believe the gift of prophecy is still functioning. You say, why would I say that? Let me just say two things. First, the gift of prophecy is given to strengthen the church. As I said, the chief purpose of all spiritual gifts is to build up the church. 1 Corinthians 12, 7 says, To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. Friends, the church always needs strengthening. The church always then needs these gifts. And prophecy is a very prominent gift. The New Testament contains two lists of spiritual gifts. And in each case, prophecy is mentioned. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, Romans chapter 12. And in Romans chapter 12, it's actually the first gift that is listed to show its prominence. 
Ephesians chapter 4, verse 11 mentions different offices in the church, and prophets are listed second behind apostles. They come before pastors and teachers. And then here in our passage, 1 Thessalonians 5, it discusses the importance of prophecy. So again, spiritual gifts are meant to strengthen the church throughout the ages, and it seems strange to claim that a gift like prophecy ceased when it is so valuable. And that leads to my second point. We are commanded to seek prophecy, to seek to prophesy. So far from teaching that it ceased, Scripture commands that we're to seek it out. 1 Corinthians 14.1, Paul writes, earnestly desire the spiritual gifts, especially that you may prophesy. A little bit later in verse 39, he says, so my brothers earnestly desire to prophesy. Again, it seems strange to, to, to believe the gift of prophecy ceased when it appears in numerous churches in the New Testament era over a long span of time, and we are commanded to seek after it. If a person who was not familiar with Christianity was on a desert island and discovered a New Testament, he would never come to the conclusion that prophecy or these gifts have ceased just by simply reading the New Testament itself. Scripture never speaks of its cessation. Instead, the New Testament indicates that these gifts will continue until Jesus returns. 1 Corinthians 13, 8 to, 8 to 10 teaches this. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. Bible scholars all recognize that the perfect is referring to Jesus, that when he returns, there will no longer be any need for spiritual gifts. Then there will be true cessationism because they will all pass away. But until Jesus returns, they will be used. The gifts will continue. By the way, Scripture never teaches that we're only given one gift at conversion and should not seek more gifts. 1 Timothy 4.14 indicates that Timothy was given a gift after conversion. So we're commanded to seek to prophesy. Everybody still hanging in there so far? All right. Just checking. Well, someone might say, well, why don't we see it more often? It's a great question. Well, as we just said, many of us are not seeking it earnestly. So why should we expect to see it often? I believe that's a big reason. But also, many Christians do practice the gift. And I've heard a lot of cases from reliable sources. And my wife will tell you, I am an incredibly analytical person. Probably to a fault. I'm no dumb cookie. But let me share a couple of personal examples. Over five years ago, Adam and I attended a conference at a church in Connecticut. And there was a time where we all gathered to sing as a group. And I think it was the pastor who got up and he said, 
At this point, I'd like for you to turn to someone around you that you don't know and to pray with them. And so uh, the woman who was standing in front of me turned around. We said hello, and then she just started immediately praying for me. She didn't pray a generic prayer of blessing over me. She prayed a prayer that I had never experienced before. Because she prayed for things that were very personal in my own heart. And in fact, one of the things that she prayed about was spiritual gifts for me. I was convinced scripture affirmed the continuation of these gifts, but not really ever experienced them and wanted to do so. I think no one knew that in the entire world except my wife. But she prayed about that. It was an amazing experience that I will always remember. How could someone know my heart like that? Of course, the drawback to the experience is that I wish that I had prayed first. (laughs) She was a pretty tough act to follow, right? (laughs) Lord, just pray, bless this woman. (laughs) Pretty humbling at that point. The second experience comes from Drew East, who served as our church worship and student pastor from 2010 to 12. Back in November, Drew posted a video on Facebook about how he had been healed of his back problems. Now, Drew didn't just have a couple aches and pains here and there. His back problems started in high school, and he experienced chronic back pain for 10 years. He had multiple disc and nerve issues. He said there wasn't an hour that went by that he did not have pain. His wife, Melissa, wrote on Facebook, for the past 10 years of our marriage, he has worn flat shoes with special inserts literally all the time. Even at night to run downstairs for a glass of water, he needed to put on his shoes so he did not hurt his back. He would even wear his shoes and socks to the beach and pool because he could not go extended or even short periods of time without the comfort of his inserts, and flip-flops did not offer the right support. And I would just say personally, being around him for several years, I would feel sorry for him because here was a man in his mid-20s that moved around like a much older man. Well, in November, while Drew was at his church in Florida, he had a conversation with a couple that he didn't know very well. As the conversation wrapped up, the husband said, wait, I think I have a word for you. Drew said, well, what is it? And the guy said to him, does strong back mean anything to you? So Drew told him this story about his back trouble, and the man said, I think the Lord wants to heal you. So they prayed over Drew, and Drew said there was a release from pain, and as the days went on, it was confirmed that his back had been healed. Melissa wrote, honestly, it has been shocking to see him walk around the house barefoot and pain-free. I know it could only be God. And I know what some of you are thinking. I got up with, or he and I contacted each other this week, and Drew said, yes, my back is still fine. I'm very happy for him. But again, I go back to the man who asked Drew whether strong back meant anything to him. I believe that was a word of prophecy 
that God revealed to this man that was then confirmed by Drew being healed. He knew nothing about Drew. And God showed that to him. So, with that as a very long introduction, (laughs) let's look at our passage. Now, before we do, I want you to see that there's two parts to this passage. The first part is negative, what to avoid. The second part is positive, what to practice. So, with each part, there's a general statement, and then he explains what that statement means in greater detail. So, here's the first part. Do not quench the spirit. Do not despise prophecies. So negatively, we are not to quench the spirit. The word quench was literally used to putting out fires. And obviously here it's used figuratively about putting out the Holy Spirit. We're not to quench the spirit. How do we do that? Paul, again, he explains that by saying, do not despise prophecies. We shouldn't quench the spirit by despising prophecies. That word despise was a strong word in the Greek language. It meant to show by one's attitude or manner of treatment that an entity has no merit or worth. An example of of this word is used in in Luke chapter 23, verse 11, when, when Jesus was arrested, Herod and his soldiers it says that they treated Jesus with contempt. It's the same word there. Imagine how they treated Jesus. Paul's saying, don't treat prophecies that way. Now, you might ask, why were people despising prophecies? Well, the gift of prophecy, like any other gift, can be misused, right? Someone might have the gift of leadership and not be a great leader because they misused that gift. Same thing with prophecy. It can be misused. And based on what Paul goes on to say about testing prophecy, it seems safe to say that this gift was being misused there at the church of Thessalonica, and people were upset about it. You say, well, how might it be misused? Well, here are some possibilities. A leader may prophesy to push an agenda or suppress rightful, honest feedback, right? Oh, yes, the Lord told me this and that and the other because he wants to get his agenda across, right? A a person may prophesy with ill motives to manipulate people by greed, lust, envy, and so forth. A person may prophesy things that are not biblically accurate, Right? 2 Thessalonians 2.2, Paul refers to an apparent prophecy that someone will later say that Jesus had already returned. We know that's incorrect, right? But someone was saying that. A person may prophesy that something is hurtful. Pastor John Piper shared an experience where a woman came up to him and his wife and prophesied that their next child, his, his wife was pregnant, their next child was going to be a daughter, they already had three sons, and that his wife was going to die during childbirth. Well, they had another son, and thankfully, his wife lived. She was wrong on both accounts. So with prophecies like this, you can understand why people can despise them sometimes. There have been many false prophecies over time, and they can cause major damage to an individual or to a church. Now, with this misuse of prophecy, then, 
Does Paul say, since it can have problems, let's get rid of it? Does he say that? He doesn't say that. What does he go on to say? He says that you need to test it. And that's the positive part. That's the positive aspect. Of it. We are to test the prophecy. Just because someone says, well, the Lord told me so and so, or I believe God's saying this, that, and the other for you, doesn't mean that you blindly accept it. If a prophecy is uttered, it should be tested. That word test in the Greek, it means to make a critical examination of something to determine genuineness. Same word was used back in chapter 2, verse 4, when Paul says that God tests our hearts. Don't you think God knows your heart inside and out, right? We are to test, examine a prophecy. Paul says the same thing in 1 Corinthians 14, 29. Let two or three prophets speak and let the others weigh what is said. So every prophecy should be tested because there is room for misuse. You say, well, who should test the words? Some say the others refer to other prophets, that they should sort of police themselves, so to speak. But I think the better answer is the whole church. The whole church should test to see if this prophecy is from God. They should test it objectively and subjectively. Objectively, what I mean by that is that they should examine it by Scripture. Scripture is always the final standard of any prophecy. It is always the standard that we judge everything by. And if the Holy Spirit inspired the writers of Scripture, which we affirm that he did, so if someone claims to have a prophecy, it is going to align with Scripture, right? A prophecy should never reject a belief of Scripture, nor should it ever encourage people to do something that is sinful or wrong. Immediately it's disregarded. But I think also subjectively the church should agree that the prophecy seems right. In other words, a prophecy may align with Scripture, but it may not fit that church in that situation. Someone might stand up and say, this is a prophecy for our church, and this is the will of God for our church, but the whole church is saying, no, this isn't right. Maybe there's nothing unbiblical about it, but the church is not in agreement with that. So if a prophecy is not recognized objectively and subjectively, it should be discarded. By the way, I think this is where you see the need for the church to be involved in the evaluation of prophecy, to give accountability, right? There should be an accountability, not just lone rangers. And to receive encouragement that if it is genuine, the whole church is built up, isn't it? Now, after the church tests a prophecy, it needs to respond. Again, Paul explains that general statement by then explaining it further. He says, but hold fast to what is good. Abstain from every form of evil. Now, again, in this context, Paul's not just changing gears all of a sudden and saying, okay, let's just talk about whatever's good, uphold that, and turn away from everything bad as a general principle. No, in the context, he's talking again about prophecy, Right? So he's saying, if a prophecy has passed the test, hold fast to it, believe it, act upon it. Likewise, abstain from every form of evil prophecy. 
Again, he's not saying just turn away from evil in general. He's saying in this context, if there is something that is not right about that prophecy, turn away from it. Some of the things that I mentioned earlier about maybe somebody said something that was wrong doctrinally or was driven by a false motive, you should turn away from every type of evil that might be there. So a false prophecy should be turned away from, or if there's parts of it that are not right, it should be discarded. So in some, we're not to be cynical about prophecy. Nor are we to be gullible about prophecy. It's easy to be one or the other, isn't it? Isn't it a lot easier? But the biblical way is the middle way. It is harder. We should not despise prophecies, and we should test them. Let me close with three points of application. First, those who disagree with continuationism. Perhaps you're still not convinced and, and you think cessationism is correct. That is fine. As I said at the outset, that's, this is not a matter of orthodoxy and it's not a matter for Christians should, should, should be dividing about. Amen? So if you disagree though, let me just encourage you to make sure that you've come to the conclusion that you reach by a careful study of Scripture not just church tradition or your personal preferences, because this might make you a little bit uncomfortable. I think it makes everybody uncomfortable. Second, those who agree with continuationism. For some of us, we, we believe the gifts have continued, but we've neglected the matter. We've disobeyed Scripture. We've not sought prophecy. We've quenched the Holy Spirit and need to repent. I think also we must have an equal resolve to test everything. Church can be ripped apart by prophecies that are not tested. But when they are tested and there is peace in the church about it, then let us believe it and act upon it. And then thirdly, those who need to receive the Holy Spirit. Scripture teaches that when we become a Christian, or we become a Christian when we turn from our sins and we believe in Jesus Christ. That's how we become a Christian. When we recognize our own sinfulness, our own need of a Savior, and we place our faith in Jesus, we don't go through hoops. We don't try to have more good than bad. We recognize that we have sin that needs to be forgiven and washed of, and we can only receive that by Jesus Christ. Amen? And the Bible promises that when we receive Jesus, what do we receive also? We receive the indwelling Holy Spirit to guide us, to direct us, to empower us. Amen? So friend, if that has never happened in your life, let me encourage you to begin that journey of walking with Jesus today and to call upon the name of the Lord and you will be saved. You will receive the third person of the, whole, of the Trinity inside of you to start changing your life and to make you more like Christ. Amen? Amen. Well, I wanted to have a few moments of discussion after I pray. If anybody had any questions or feedback about the message, 
here this morning. But let me pray, and then we will open the floor. Lord, we thank you for your word. Thank you that it is a two-edged sword that opens up our hearts and our minds so that we're stretched. And Lord, I pray that your word will do a work today in our hearts. And Holy Spirit, we do repent of quenching you. And not just quenching the gift of prophecy, but quenching you. And we pray that we would obey your word. That you tell us to seek to prophesy. And Lord, we pray that our church would be a place where we uphold the supremacy of your word. And we try to live it out. The authority of your word. All things stand under the authority of your word, even prophecy. And Lord, because your word is supreme, that is why we preach every word of it and we tackle difficult subjects like even our passage here today. But we need these things. We need all things for our good and for our growth. And so, Lord, we pray that your word would sink deep into our hearts about the things we have heard here this morning. Lord, we give this time to you as we ask it in Jesus' name. All God's people said, amen.